Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Hey everyone, thanks for watching today. If you've been following along with us, you'll know that we are in a sermon series called The New Normal. We've been looking at those key moments, those pivotal, disruptive times in history, particularly in the history of God's people, and looking at and seeing how God works through those moments for our good and His glory. So today, on Pentecost Sunday, we're looking at this amazing turning point that is ushered in by the Holy Spirit. Jesus ascends to heaven, and the Spirit of Almighty God comes down and indwells the hearts of man. And the world is never the same. It is not too bold a statement to say that the Spirit's arrival on Pentecost transforms and reshapes the entire world, powerfully in invisible and spiritual ways, but also in normative ways, in ways that are visible to anyone with eyes and a history book. We are living in, and the entire world acknowledges, we are living in the year 2020. That doesn't make sense numerically. It is the year 2020 only because of the impact of Jesus of Nazareth and the effect of the Holy Spirit unleashed on the world. This small band of people without power, without influence, without authority, without money or prestige, 120 of them in a house are indwelled by the Spirit, and through the Spirit, they change the world. That's not hyperbole. That's a literal statement. It's not some aspirational sentiment that you might hear at one of these commencement speeches. Oh, you youngsters, you're going to change the world. No, this is something more. This is a moment that reshapes the world to such an extent that even our calendar is upended. It starts with Jesus, who ushers in a new covenant and a new order. And from that, we get the Holy Spirit, who gives us a new testament and new life and transforms us to be new creations. And we continue on this path of newness until at last, the one who sits on the throne makes everything new. So you might as well start counting anew. You might as well. So let's look at this. Let's start with John chapter 20. Jesus has now died and is risen, and his disciples are in a locked room, and this is what they say beginning in verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is odd because this is not Pentecost. Jesus says, receive the spirit. So did they receive the spirit or did they not? Chronologically, it doesn't fit. Luke tells us that they received the Spirit a few days after Jesus' ascension. Luke says this in Acts. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. Then, a few days later, at Pentecost, we have this account. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They start preaching the gospel in all these various languages and explaining the scriptures and pointing people to the Savior. And this is the response. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. But if they received the Spirit by Jesus in John, then what is the Spirit that they received at Pentecost? Well, let's turn to our systematic theology tome. These disciples who had had an old covenant, less powerful experience of the Holy Spirit in their lives received on the day of Pentecost a more powerful new covenant experience of the Holy Spirit working in their lives. Now, if that's confusing to you, don't worry. They give you a nifty chart. See, here at Pentecost, believers experience a transition from an old covenant experience of the Holy Spirit to a more powerful new covenant experience of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a fine explanation, I suppose. But I think that God gives us images so that we can understand him better. That's what the sacraments largely are. These are visible external signs of an invisible internal reality. So Peter says, as we just read, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now there certainly is a connection between baptism and the Spirit, but it's not always so chronological. In chapter 10 of Acts with Cornelius and the Gentiles, they receive the Holy Spirit and then they're baptized. But in Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans, it says this, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Those are wildly different experiences, but that's helpful. A baptism is a powerful image for us and helps us to better grasp the gospel. But we can be so wrapped up in the sign that we mistake it for the thing itself. 
And so these wildly different manifestations are clarifying for that. We see, oh, you can have the Spirit even if you haven't been baptized yet. And just because you've been baptized, that doesn't mean that you have the Spirit. That's clarifying for us. That's helpful for us. And in the same way, I think here, we have two different outpourings of the Holy Spirit, two different pictures that deepen and enrich our understanding of what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. So we see Jesus saying, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathes on them. And that's such an evocative image, isn't it? It brings to mind the creation. God's saying in his triune nature, let us make man in our image, and he breathes life into him. It makes us think of Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones, where God says, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And that is what the Spirit of God does in us. It brings the dead to life, it forms a new creation, and it transforms us into the image, into the likeness of Christ. Jesus breathing on them is a powerful picture of what the Spirit does in our life. But if that's all we had, if that's the only account we had, we we might get the wrong idea. We can get lost in the image. So we might think that we need Jesus to physically breathe on us in order to receive the Spirit. Or we might think that the disciples got a special Spirit that we don't have. So gratefully, we see another outpouring of the Spirit on the disciples that clarifies things for us. We see, oh, you don't need the physical Jesus in order to receive the Spirit. This this deepens our understanding of what the Spirit accomplishes within us. Not only does it raise us to life, but it empowers us. It emboldens us to reach others. We saw the connection between the fall and the Tower of Babel. Sin separating us from God and separating us from our fellow man. But now, through the Spirit, we have fellowship with God and a restoration and unity and peace with our fellow man. Speaking languages that we don't even know. Isn't that a great picture for us of what the Spirit does? But if that's the only image we had, we might get the wrong idea. We might think, oh, well, you don't even need Jesus to receive the Spirit. And that's not true. Or without this account, we might think that the Spirit is there just to transform us And that's all. We got the Spirit, and we can just stay locked in our room. But here we see that, no, the Spirit is missional. In Ezekiel, when God breathes life into those dry bones, they rise to become a vast army. It's missional. It's purposeful. God is raising an army. His Spirit gives us life, and He leads us by that same Spirit. He empowers us and forms an army that even the gates of Hades won't be able to withstand. And we see the powerful impact of God's army marching through human history, starting at Pentecost. You know, it's, it's so funny. 
God's army has in many ways been so successful that that people actually think that Christian values and ideals are just normal. It's just always been this way. Christian compassion or, or Christian altruism, that's just universal. But that's not true. You know, Christians under the Roman Empire were put to death and punished for the crime of caring for deformed and crippled children that were left to die. That was common in the ancient world, leaving these babies out to die of exposure. That was common practice through most of the ancient world. That's what God references in Ezekiel when he says this, No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood, and as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. It is that Spirit of God that indwells us. It is that Spirit that caused those early Christians to care for those abandoned children. It is that Spirit that compels us to have compassion and mercy for the downtrodden. That was not the old normal. Prominent Greek and Roman philosophers emphatically argued that caring for the poor and beggars was a disservice to society. There's an Indian proverb that says, the tears of strangers are just water. See, that makes sense from their mindset. They believe in reincarnation. So if you're helping someone, then you're harming them. They need to suffer in order to be reincarnated into something better. Christian compassion and mercy is a response of the spirit. It's not universal. It is the Spirit of God in ordinary people that created orphanages. Historians suggest that orphanages didn't exist until Christians started them because the Spirit compels us to look after the widow and the orphan. It is the Spirit of God in ordinary people that created hospitals. At the Council of Nicaea, they mandated that every city with a cathedral must have a hospital so that people who are traveling can have safe lodging and people who have medical needs can get attention there. Romans had medical facilities for their armies. Physicians were available for the rich. But we didn't have hospitals till Christians built them because the Spirit of God tells us to be hospitable to care for the sick and the poor and the stranger. You know, Jesus says these words to us in John. You are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So often, I don't think that we believe him. We just want Jesus to be here physically, but recognize that through the Spirit, we are the hands and feet of Jesus. In the Spirit, through ordinary people, God has clothed and fed and housed and comforted and healed and cared for millions. The impact of the Spirit of God in our culture has been so pervasive, it created a new normal to such an extent that people think it's universal. And that there was no old normal. 
But as we separate from the Spirit of God, these ideals and virtues and institutions that we think are just normal will wither. To have the fruits of the Spirit, it needs to be connected to the vine. Listen to the words of Moses here in Numbers. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. You know, we are what Moses was yearning for. Do you realize that? The Spirit of God has been poured out on all of his people. We are a priesthood of believers. We speak Christ into each other. We speak Christ into one another's lives, in a fellowship, in community. And that's one of the things that I think has been lacking a bit during this COVID crisis. It's always been a struggle, but it's even more accentuated here. People are saying a lot these days that the church isn't a building. And that's true. Uh, but, but one of my friends remarked that it's starting to feel like uh, James Clavel's novel, The Children's Story. Basically, in that story, the U.S. has been conquered by a foreign country, and then the foreign country sends in their people to teach American students and basically undermine and deconstruct the values of American society. So they'll, they'll take the flag and they'll go, hmm, the flag is special. So if you have a piece... Oh, that's better than having just to look at it because you can keep it in your pocket. So the flag was cut up by the children and they were very proud that they each had a piece. But now the flagpole was bare and strange. And there's something in that. We're sometimes just grabbing pieces of church. The church is not a building. But it is a congregation. That's what the Greek word means. It's, it's an assembly of God's people. The church then must congregate in some fashion. When Hebrews says this, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. It doesn't say that because of a deficiency of technology in the first century. No, we need it. The church is not a building, but it's also not a screen either. The church has to be more than just a content provider. Now understand what I'm not saying. Some of you might hear this and think, yeah, we just need to get back. We, you know, we need to stop this nonsense and we just need to get back and do church. And I'll tell you something else. I'm not wearing a mask because that's not church. I think we need to recall what God says in Amos. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. If we're not loving our neighbor." If we're not caring for the most vulnerable, then our assemblies are just a stench. We're going to be opening our doors. That's coming. 
But we want to make sure that we are doing it in a way that's God-honoring. So be in prayer for your leaders as they wrestle with this and with the staff here as, as we try our best to implement that. But on this Pentecost Sunday, I want to challenge us to find ways to live this out as a congregation, even if it's just digitally. How are we spurring one another on toward love and good deeds? How are we encouraging one another? How are we edifying one another? How are we sharing Christ with one another? Like, share, comment, post your own video. I I don't know, but find a way for the spirit that lives in you to minister to this congregation. We are the church. And how remarkable is that? This, this new normal that we're living in, that, that Moses longed for, is ours. Because of Jesus, the curtain in the temple was torn in two, and now the Spirit of God can dwell in men. Oh, let's not just be locked in our room. Oh, let's be transformed by the Spirit into the likeness of Christ and empowered by that Spirit to manifest God in His church and beyond. Let's pray. Father God, we ask for your Spirit to be over us in everything that we do in our lives. I pray that you would transform us to be like you, that everything that we do would be an expression of love and grace and mercy and compassion, that we would reflect your heart and your character, the things that you are concerned with. Oh Lord, give us wisdom as we make these decisions, as we wrestle through this new normal. Be with us, Father. In your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.